Welcome back to The Word at Work. My name is Nils, and it's a great pleasure to take us through these opening chapters of the book of Revelation. We're up to the third letter that Jesus wrote to the ancient churches, and this one's the church of Pergamum in ancient Turkey. You can find it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Uh, why not press pause on the video and quickly have a read through of that section before we look at it together. Well, like each of the other letters, Jesus gives at the start of it a snapshot of who he is taken from that vision that John has in chapter 1. And in each case it's a, a, an aspect of who he is that this church desperately needs to be reminded of in their circumstances. So look at verse 12 with me of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The him there is Jesus. And he has these words that he wants to speak to the church. Let's just acknowledge how remarkable it is that Jesus has anything to say here. I mean, he's supposed to have died at the hands of, of the Roman soldiers as he was crucified, but he hasn't remained dead. He's alive and he has words that he wants to speak. And these words, we're told, are like a double-edged sword. Uh, these are words that are powerful. I mean, they're not like our words, are they? If you're a parent, uh, you know that our words have limited ability to actually produce what we want them to produce. You can tell your kid, tidy up your room. Doesn't always work, doesn't always happen. When Jesus speaks, though, it's like a double-edged, razor-sharp sword that cuts through everything and leaves you exposed and, and it leaves you squirming in its wake. And, and Jesus says, this is how I'm going to address you. Listen to what I'm about to say. Let's see what he says. Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my favorite, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Twice here, Jesus speaks quite damningly about the city of Pergamum. He calls it Satan's place. Now that's strong language. Why did he call this city Satan's place? Well, Pergamum was a wealthy, hip-happening city in the ancient world. It was vibrant, it was bustling. It was actually the Roman capital of the province of Asia. But Pergamum was also a hotbed of pagan religion. You might remember that I, I said the emperor in the previous episode uh, called on the ancient world to recognize him as Lord, not just emperor. And so Emperor Domitian was to be revered. And this city took that very seriously. They built statues in his honor. Uh, and so throughout Pergamum, there was, these, there was this sort of reminder of, of the uh, responsibility you had by law to worship the emperor as lord. There were also pagan temples and gods everywhere. If you took a red top uh, bus through the city of Pergamum, you'd be able to see altar after altar devoted to different gods. Most famously was the altar and the temple to the Greek god Zeus. Uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. The Germans liked it so much they dismantled it brick by brick and rebuilt it in Berlin. So this was pagan central. It was also the place where, as I mentioned in a previous episode, if you were in business, you had to submit to the, the guilds, the religious guilds or the religions that were associated with the guilds in the business world. So Pergamon was another really tough place to be a Christian. You would be unlikely to get into the college that you wanted if you were a Christian holding to Jesus Christ as Lord. It would be unlikely that your business thrived. It would be unlikely that you got the opportunities that you might want. Jesus says, I know where you live. I know how hard this is for you. I know the injustice and the, the oppression that you experience. I know. And what's remarkable about these Christians is that they haven't given in to the outside pressure. He says in verse 13, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. 
Even when Antipas was killed, we don't know who he is, perhaps a, a member of their church, a father, a family member, even when he was killed for his faith, this church held on and they did not deny Jesus. So far, so good, right? I mean, they really outshine many of us if we were in their situation. But not everything is good. Jesus has concerns. Let's have a look at what he says in verse 14. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, here's where it gets a little bit muddy, so you're going to have to stick with me. What is Jesus talking about here? Clearly, he's not happy, but what is he unhappy about? Let's try and do things in reverse order. The Nicolaitans, who were they? Well, we don't really know who they were, to be honest. Uh, his first readers would have known who they were. Uh, clearly, they were bad news and a bad influence within this church. But what about Balaam? We do know a lot about him. We find uh, the character Balaam in the book of Numbers, in chapters 22 to 31 of the book of Numbers. Balaam was a, a sneaky prophet, uh, and he was used by the king of Moab, Balak, to entice the Israelites to sin. And uh, what he did is he got the Moabite women to sexually seduce the Israelite men. It was a good strategy, and it worked really effectively. In fact, so effectively that the Israelites started worshipping Baal, uh, the Canaanite god, as a result of this. And they started participating in the pagan feasts, the, idolatry, the idol, uh, idol feasts. And what God is saying is that this is a warning to this particular church. See, there is a form of teaching, and notice he says teaching twice in this short section. There's a form of teaching that encourages the very thing that Israel were guilty of under Balaam. It encourages people to compromise, particularly in the two areas of sexuality and idolatry, those issues that were a problem in the Balaam story. And so, yes, they're standing firm against the outside pressure, but they're giving in to the culture all around them in areas that are really, really dangerous. I don't think there were teachers um, explicitly teaching them to sin within the church, but what they weren't doing was telling them not to sin. You, you can teach by what you say, you can teach by what you don't say, can't you? And so their teaching doesn't speak out against the sinful pull of the surrounding world and the surrounding culture, and particularly in these two areas of sexuality and idolatry. You know, in a world like ours, we... As we live in a world and a culture that is also full of idols, full of sexual immorality, what we need is church leaders particularly who would resolutely stand against these things and speak out against these things, who are courageous. You know, sometimes, I guess, churches can be led by nice, polite, uh, gentle, kind, lovable leaders who refuse to say anything bad against the sins that are prevalent within the church. And if there's one thing we've always got to be intolerant about in our world as Christians, it is sin. Sin within our, our own uh, midst, particularly. I think you know, one of the things as Christians we can be guilty of is being very vocal about the sins out there without being vocal about the sins within our midst, within our church itself. God expects his people to stand apart from the world in which they find themselves, to be different from the culture around them, to be distinct, not separate, but distinct. And it's our distinctiveness from the culture that actually gives us something to say in our culture and testifies to the power of the gospel to change lives. 
I mean, what is the gospel going to do if it can't even change our lives? So if we can demonstrate that it really makes a difference, that's a powerful witness. Jesus says, don't let your guard down. Because there will be consequences. Did you notice in verse 16? Jesus says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight, will war against you with the sword of my mouth. Here's the choice. Either we deal with the sin that we see in ourselves and in our midst now, or Jesus will deal with it on that terrible day when we stand before him, the one with the double-edged sword. Jesus says, I will war against those who ignore sin. But to those who listen, did you notice there is a reward? And all of the letters contain this hope, this promise of a reward to those who will be victorious. Jesus says in verse 17, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the one who is victorious. Notice, he doesn't say to the one who is perfect. Jesus doesn't expect that we'll win every battle against sin, but he does expect that we will battle against sin, that we'll fight against it. And it is a lifelong fight, but the reward is is unbelievable to those who will persevere. Notice three things that he promises here. Hidden manna. What does he mean? Well, in the Old Testament, manna, of course, was provided to Israel to sustain them for the 40 years in the wilderness. And what Jesus is saying is that if we'll cling to him, he will provide for us. Even if it seems that everything else is taken away from us, Jesus will provide for us. And he'll provide something so much more satisfying than the allure and the empty promises of sin. Why is it hidden manna? Well, because we can't see it now, can we? These promises are are by faith. We have to trust him for them. He provides a white stone. Now, this is an ancient symbol, I think, of acquittal. So that those who trust in Jesus, even though we don't win every battle, when we stand before him at the end, will receive this white stone that says, not guilty, accepted, and a new name. A name that says, we belong to God. We are his. We don't belong to this world. And even if the culture rejects us, even if our life is taken from us, nothing can take that from us. Nothing can take away our identity as God's. So don't give up and don't give in. And do join us next time as we go on to the next letter that Jesus wrote to the ancient churches.